Welcome to Howden's new podcast, Fortune Favours the Brave. We all take risks in our everyday life and business is no different. In this podcast, we're speaking to the experts about a topical challenge or issue and what business leaders can do to overcome it. In this mini-series, Chris Davies is going to be looking at the British Steel Pensions redress and what that means for financial advisors moving forward. Welcome back to episode two of our podcast discussing the British Steel consultation from the regulator. I'm with Paul Freeman, senior underwriter from Liberty Specialty Markets, and Rob Morris, partner at RPC. Chance, we talked in the earlier podcast about some of the reasons behind the review itself, and I'd like, if I could, to just talk about a few more of the practicalities that are raised by the consultation paper. One of the things I think will possibly raise some eyebrows amongst the uh, financial advice community is the decision by the regulator to use the ombudsman as the final arbiter, I suppose, in terms of the suitability of cases. So for those that haven't read the paper, the proposal is broadly that the firms themselves will check the files where they've been marked as suitable or graded as suitable. The files may well then go on to be assessed by the ombudsman as a kind of double check. I think the phrase the the regulator uses that we can't mark our own homework, I think is one of the phrases they've used. And I think we can all understand that to a degree, but how do you feel, Paul, about the ombudsman being the arbiter of, of these cases, these reviews that have been marked as suitable by the firms? I have lots of concerns about them being the arbiter of this. A variety of reasons. The, the, the methodology that FOS operate is under a fair and reasonable the methodology for the 404 is a legal basis. So for a start, the two are, are diverging away from each other at that point. At the same time, nobody within FOS is actually a qualified pension specialist. So completing the DBAT tool does require a specialist advisor to be able to do so. So how do you judge a specialist when you're not qualified yourself to give the advice in the first place? You've got to remember, giving DB advice is a different qualification, a different level of expertise to, in inverted commas, just a financial advisor. So if you're putting that sort of measure in there for the protection in the first place, you really need the same qualified type person, a specialist, to actually look at the advice and the way that they've come to the conclusions. And that's without getting into the conversations about the suitability of the DBAT tool. So realistically, I don't think FOS could be an independent arbiter on this. Okay. Uh, it's very interesting. I think, and I think I, I certainly feel that everybody can understand the sentiment behind that. I think people get the bit that somebody else might have to check, or maybe even on a sample basis. But it sounds that it's it's far more sort of enshrined into the process. You know, I, I was also struck by the fact that in, inside each of the firms, every suitable file is going to have to. There's an attestation, isn't there, for for somebody who's under the SMCR regime to actually say that they've reviewed the file and they believe it is a suitable file. And then from there, it goes goes further again. Yeah. Rob, have you, have you had any experience of that kind of process in the past anywhere else? No. So as to the best of my knowledge, none of the previous, um, well, certainly not uh, the previous Section 404 redress scheme for Arch Crew, that did not involve that type of attestation. Um, neither did the original pension review. And as far as I'm aware, other past business reviews, whether imposed on firms by the FCA or skilled person reviews, have involved that kind of process. I suspect that it's been introduced here partly because we've got the SMCR, uh, whereas we didn't have that, obviously, with the pension review. And the FCA just wants to ensure, perhaps, that senior management take this 
as seriously as they possibly can. So I imagine that's why they've decided to implement that or suggest that is implemented. It, it seems as though we're kind of double and triple checking. And I think, I think for me, the fact that there's no element of a sort of a sample even, I think the suggestion is that all of those cases would be, would be looked at. I mean, in terms of backlogs and workloads, it I, just I seems think, like a massive thing for them to undertake anyway. Well, I think that's right. And one of the big questions is, does the FOS really have the capacity to deal with this? Or indeed, does the FSCS have the capacity to deal with this? Um, but that's perhaps a separate issue. I think as I read the paper, the proposal is that where firms conclude that files are suitable, the firm will then have to pass on to the FCA the names and addresses of those clients so that the FCA can then contact the clients and say to the clients effectively, you do realise, don't you, that you can ask the FOS to review this if you want. So as currently proposed, I don't think it will automatically be the case that every suitable file will be passed to the FOS to review. But clearly, those clients where their advice is found to have been suitable are going to be heavily encouraged by the FCA to pass the matter back to the FOS to look at. And as Paul says, there are real question marks about whether they should, uh, whether the FOS is an appropriate forum for that further final check. Uh, and it's perhaps worth noting that if, if a claim about pension transfer advice were to go before a court, which of course is what the Section 404 test is about, if an individual made a claim in law, would there be a legal liability? If a claim was made to a court, the court would look to an independent expert in pension transfers to guide it as to whether the advice was suitable or not, or in the in the sort of legal jargon, reasonable, and therefore was the advice negligent or not. So a court would have to consult with a pension transfer expert, whereas what the FCA is proposing is that these files are checked by, as Paul rightly points out, non-experts. I think the, the level of redress available to FOSS probably is a, another podcast in itself. But it's worth noting, I think, that without any legal um, overview, the scheme's quite powerful in the sense of how much it can award in terms of redress. And I'm also struck that in some way, the um, proposed review has become two or maybe even three-tiered in that those customers that have been dealt with and have rights of referral to the ombudsman have a much higher level than those that go to the FSCS. And even within the FSCS, if a firm um, did go into liquidation, depending on the date, there might be different amounts that can be paid out there. So the level of outcome to the consumer is different at different levels, how they, they still enter the actual redress scheme, I suppose, in that sense. Do you have any concerns, Paul, around those different levels? I mean, presumably, where a firm has gone out to business the I think a common misconception would be that for insurers, that claim is out with the reach of, of that policy, but it's not, is it? I think people often forget this, that the FSCS can come back and talk to insurers about where their policy exists and about, about getting compensation kind of coming back from yeah, insurers the, on this. I think for a lot of firms out there, we'll feel that the, the, you know, the pots, the, the 20.6 million, I think, is the pot from the FSCS. I think quite a portion of that may well end up coming from PI insurers as well, mightn't it? There's every possibility that, yes, the FCS, FSCS sorry, retain subrogation rights. So if there 
was a policy in force and there was a notification made, then they can subrogate back against PR insurance, obviously subject to their particular terms and conditions. But yes, it, it, ultimately it will end up coming back to the insurance market. Yeah, and and, and obviously the, those figures are, are considerable in themselves. I think in terms of the way that the current redress is proposed, it's always struck me particularly that one of a number of reasons why the review is actually happening is because it's 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 proposed that many of the individuals that transferred their scheme benefits out didn't have the suitable appetite for risk or capacity for loss in order to make those appropriate judgments and they're not seen i think as a, as 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 having the financial skills to manage their pension pots through to retirement and therefore they would have been better within the scheme where the defined benefits would have, would have just paid out as and when. So it, it's always struck me that for that potential client who, who was genuinely deserving of redress, giving them more cash or capital to do what it is that they what choose to do with doesn't really resolve the problem that we've, we feel that we've identified because we're just giving them more capital. And if they, if they feel anxious about the market volatility and all those kinds of things that naturally they would do, having more capital doesn't necessarily help. Absolutely. So if you go back to the whole basis for the 404, it is the consumer wasn't in a place where giving up a guaranteed benefit was in their best interests. They're not able to manage their money for whatever reason on on that front. They can't take that risk with their pot. So the proposal is to just give them a lump of cash, which doesn't necessarily even have to go into a pension wrapper. Whereas the right way to redress them would be to give them back their, cap- their guaranteed benefits, to lock, lock everything in so that they've got their income for the rest of their retirement um, and effectively take away the flexibility that the pension freedoms was initially given. In fairness to the regulator, they've been playing catch up since pension freedoms came in because we could all see the writing on the wall when that one came in um, and the regulators themselves in fairness to them. The right way to redress on this would be either reinstatement within British Steel, probably BSPS2 because BSPS1 doesn't exist, or a form of deferred annuity that provides exactly that lock-in and matches the benefits that they would have had in the first place. And I think if you look at a lot of the proposals that have been replied to, question 19 I believe of, of the consultation paper, all of them have made that point back to the regulator. And I think that needs more investigation. I think I think it's always struck me. Is, is there a is there a sense from from your perspective, Rob, as to why the regulators sort of avoided that? Because it's not even mentioned, is it really, in the in the potential redress? It, it's mentioned, or a couple of alternatives are mentioned, but only very very briefly. The regulator already has a preferred redress methodology for pension transfer cases, and it's been in place. Well, frankly, it's been in place since the original pension review. Although back with the original pension review, the preferred redress method there, in fact, was to reinstate consumers back into their defined benefit scheme if that was available. And of course, back in the late 90s and early 2000s, that was available in a lot of cases. Over the last 20 odd years, of course, fewer DB schemes exist and those that do continue almost certainly don't allow reinstatement. So that option has very much fallen away. So over recent years, the FCA has always 
expected redress to be paid by way of a cash lump sum. And it's calculated in a very complicated way and you have to use an actuary to do it. And the FCA prescribes certain assumptions that have to be used for that actuary to calculate a lump sum amount. Uh, now, there are issues around the assumptions that are used in that calculation, which tends to be exceedingly favourable to the consumer. And it might be said that that's appropriate to make sure that they are uh, protected as far as possible. But I think the FCA perhaps has got a bit blinkered in its view as to how redress should be paid, and it hasn't fully explored the alternatives. So it does mention in passing buying an annuity as an option for redress. But they say that their concern with that would be that by the time the consumer, the ex-member of the British Steel Scheme, reaches a retirement age, the risk would be that the firm would no longer exist or have sufficient money to be able to acquire an annuity. And that is an understandable concern. However, what they haven't apparently given any consideration to is the ability perhaps to acquire a deferred annuity. So the firm immediately incurs the cost of the redress. So they have to buy a deferred annuity for the individual. Uh, the individual has to give up their remaining pension benefits that they had transferred out. So the firm effectively just pays the additional amount on top to buy the deferred annuity. And in that way, the individual then has that guaranteed income in retirement. And it's backed by, inevitably, a big insurance company. Yeah. Now, the big issue with that is there aren't really deferred annuities currently available easily in the market. But that's partly because nobody's properly explored it and the regulator hasn't properly explored it and there's been no market for it. Whereas here is a prime opportunity to develop that market uh, and therefore come up with a much more appropriate way of providing redress to these people. Well, I think I was, I've been struck by every time I've spoken to somebody on the underwriting side, Paul, that nobody here is trying to not play claims. Everybody wants to pay the right amount of redress to the right consumer where they've suffered any you know, financial oh, harm. Absolutely. And, and that might cost more, mightn't it? That, it that, that might cost more on an individual basis. It but yet probably still, would on an individual claim basis. Pro to. Yes, on an individual claim basis, it, it's likely to cost more to put them back into that position than it would to just to give them a cash lump sum. But the consumer would get the right protections that they should have had from the first place. And ultimately, that's what this is trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, it just occurred to me as, as, as Rob was chatting away there about scheme actuaries. It's not mentioned, is it? But, but there must be some part to play because my understanding was that they're meant to make a fair value assessment of the benefits that the, the member's giving up on the way out of the door, aren't they, surely? I think that's a slightly difficult issue, in my opinion. So the, the way that scheme actuaries value transfer payments cash equivalent transfer values is prescribed in a particular way. And it can vary depending on financial circumstances, things such as the inflation rate at the time, annuity rates and so on. So and a scheme actuary is valuing the cash equivalent transfer value on one method, which is not necessarily the same method that is used for calculating redress. So there will be a disparity and the financial circumstances that we're in now, in fact, are very, very different to the financial circumstances that there were back in 2016, 2017. 
there are other things come into play. So essentially what the scheme is trying to decide and the actuary is trying to decide is if the scheme no longer has to pay income to an individual when they retire because they've left the scheme, how much money can they do without while still protecting the remaining members of the scheme? Uh, the funding state of the scheme would also be taken into account. And don't exactly. forget British still wasn't in the best of places at the time. Exactly right. So, so I'm personally not convinced that the actuaries of the British Steel scheme necessarily did anything wrong. I mean, I have no insider knowledge, so I haven't got a clue. But um, I don't think just because there seems to be a disparity now where I know lots of people will say, well, hang on a minute, these an individual transferring out received what should have been fair value for their pension benefits. And yet here we are only a couple of years later, and they seem to be getting a huge redress payment, which would suggest that the transfer value was inappropriately small. I think that's an oversimplification of what's gone on. And I don't really think that of itself illustrates a problem with what the actuaries of the scheme did. But it goes to probably explain in a bit more detail why there is the disparity. Yeah, there are... Relations are two different things, and therefore it's not necessarily... The the loss might have been crystallised almost on transfer out, not necessarily what's happened in the market since. I think that's right, but it's also been adversely affected by what's happened since the market. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Okay. Gents, thank you very much for your time there. I think that's uh, probably a good place to pause for episode two, and I'd uh, welcome all the listeners back to our final part, episode three, in due course. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fortune Favours the Brave from Howden. To hear more episodes and subscribe to our channel, search Fortune Favours the Brave on your favourite podcast app.